Zechariah chapter, we're going to cover 12 through 14 tonight. If you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah chapter 12 or your phone or your tablet. You can also get on our website. All the notes will be on the web tonight. Then we'll have a few other extra verses on the screen as usual. This is the last night of Zechariah, so a quick little sort of summary. You know, the book of Zechariah was written really for two reasons. It was to encourage, reassure, and almost prod the people to get back to work building the temple, and the wall would come later, but it was also encouraging them that this was going to happen, and kind of almost in a, in a way, kicking the pants to get back to work. But it was also parts of it, and we've bounced back and forth, it's a prophetic word, and we're going to see a lot of prophetic word tonight, by the way, about Jesus. It's about the completion of God's word, the completion of all that is predicted in the Bible, of end times, and all the fullness of God, as you could call it. So our passage tonight will have a lot of future events. They were future when Zechariah recorded them or spoke them. Some of them have happened, but a lot of them are still yet to come. They're more what we would call end times verses, like we saw back in Revelation. And so tonight also we'll see the word sometime on that day. Well, once again, some of those days have come to pass. Some of those days are still yet to come. So with all that being said, our last night of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what it says. A prophecy. So it tells us right out the gate, these are prophetic words. The word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person declares. That's verse 1. So right there in our first verse, we see three really awesome things. That God is sovereign. God is supreme. God is in charge. He's the creator of heaven, the creator of earth, and also the creator of you and I. It tells us he knit us together in our mother's womb. We are all, all of you in this room and all of you watching online, and Bob, I hope you're watching too, by the way. See how I do with your notes. We are fashioned together in our mother's womb by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. He gave us life. He breathed life into us. So literally, I'm looking out at a bunch of miracles. I see a bunch of miracles in the audience, and I see you online too. And I'm a miracle. We are a living, breathing, walking miracle of human life gifted by God. But not just that, because that verse says he put the human spirit in us. If we're a believer or a Christ follower, as we call him here in Calvary, Melbourne, we have his Holy Spirit also inside of us. He gave us not just a human spirit, a Holy Spirit that helps us transform to be more like him. So what a great package of benefits. The earth, the heaven, a human spirit, and God's Holy Spirit. Let's read verse 2. This is what God is kind of prophesying through Zechariah. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. In other words, God's going to fix all the attacks. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem, but on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it or attack it will injure themselves. Now we know, because I know a lot of you were here back when we went through Revelation, that in, in end times, all the nations will come against Israel, and the whole world will really come to, against to attack Israel, and it looks like they might be going to win in their mind anyway. And this verse reminds us God is going to protect his people. God is going to protect them, and he called them an immovable rock. It's his people. We learned a couple of weeks ago in Zechariah, it's not just the people. He called the land his land, his promised land that would never be taken away 
So God's going to get in the fight is what it amounts to. And in the original language, this word immovable rock translates out to weight or really even immense weight, heavy weight. And it's really the only time in the whole Old Testament this particular word was used. And the idea behind it was Jerusalem is going to be so heavy, no enemy can move it. No enemy could lift it. It's an immovable object is what God is telling the people. And the irony is the people that are going to attack, they think they're going to hurt Israel. But what did that verse say? All who try to move it are going to injure themselves. They will get hurt. And we know in Revelation, if you think back, remember Jesus comes back with a sword and he wipes out all the armies. There's no hope. And we are just the spectators. We get to come and watch, but we don't even fight. We, we watch Jesus do all the work. What a great day that will be, by the way. And all the people against Israel will be the ones getting injured. But that also applies to us. Think about that same concept as it would apply to you and I. As we go through trials, as we go through struggles, difficult times in our lives, sickness, illness, cancer, financial, relational, employment, whatever your trial might be, the battle belongs to God. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's what that scripture is trying to tell us. We see that all through scripture, especially in the Old Testament. There's verse after verse that tells us literally the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. We're going to look at one in a second. And I'll give you three quick examples. Think about David and Goliath. It looked like an unwinnable fight. There's no way that little guy could beat that giant. What did God do? He won. He, he stepped in. God fought that fight. Then Gideon and his 300 warriors. Remember, God kept weeding down the number of people to fight because he wanted it clear that I won. It wasn't the people. It wasn't your army. It was 300 against a massive army. God won the battle. And then lastly, the verse we're going to look at, there's a verse about Jehoshaphat when he defeats the Midianites, and it was called a great multitude. Let's look at that one on screen. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15. Here's what it says. Listen, all of you Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, and this is for us too, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude even though it looks like the whole world's against you. The battle is not yours. Whose is it? God's. The battle is God's. That same idea, that same concept applies to my life, your life. So if you're in a battle, give it to the Lord. You'll probably hear that again sometime tonight, by the way. Because in all these situations, there's many more I could have pulled out of Scripture. God fights the fight. He goes before the battle, and he does all the work. That's what we want to do in our life. So Really, as Christ followers, we have to all ask ourselves a pretty kind of self-examination question. How am I doing in that? When I have a big trial, when I have a big struggle, am I trying to win in my own strength, my own knowledge, my own wisdom, my own financial ability, my own whatever? Or am I letting God fight it for me? Because sometimes God, he wants to let us try because we, we're kind of stubborn. I know I am sometime. And he'll say, okay, go ahead, Dave. Have at it. And he will not get in the battle until I get out of the way. So my job is to sometimes just say, okay, God, I'll let you fight. That's what he wants to do because God is telling Israel this same idea, which brings up our first point if you're taking notes tonight. It's a, a note we already know. The battle belongs to the Lord. We can never hear that too much, though, because we sometimes get ahead of God, like I just described. We try to fix it in our ingenuity, our financial ability, our physical strength. 
God wants to fix it for us, but he won't if I'm in the way. Because as long as we're in the fight and trying to fix it myself, God will let me struggle. He'll let you struggle. He wants me to let go and sort of get out of the way where he can go to work. Because he's not going to work until I move. So my job is to, okay, God, i got to pray about this. Holy Spirit, help me move. Let God fight for me. Let's skip down to verse 10. Same chapter, skip down to verse 10. We're going to read a very interesting verse, and I kind of hinted about that as I told you Bob Russell would be here. Remember, I talked about the pierced one. We're going to see that in verse 10. I kind of gave us a little heads up as we closed last week. Verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, here's the key, the one they pierced, the one they pierced, and they will mourn for him, him is the Messiah, as one mourns for an only child, that's important, and grieve bitterly for him, really for his passing, as one grieves for a firstborn son. So when we keep reading in a second, we're going to see in verses 11 through 14 that this mourning will encompass the whole nation. It's going to include the royal family, and it just said the house of David, that would be the royal family, the prophets, and the prophet at this time when this was written would have been Nathan, the priest, Levi, the Levites even, the teachers, and then all the way down to the people like us, the common ordinary people. They're all going to mourn the Messiah that they pierced. Someday... Not yet, but someday the Jewish nation will mourn the Messiah they pierced. And we're going to see that in Scripture tonight. And this mourning in that verse, it's compared to the mourning of the loss of not just a child, because that would be terrible, of course. I know there's people in this room who have lost children. But an only child even makes it all the more worse, if it could be any worse. Because now there's no other children. And that's the mourning the Jews are going to feel. And that's the mourning that it's calling us to feel for Jesus when we think about him being pierced on the cross for us, like we lost our only child. And the reason that illustration is used, by the way, for the Israelite nation, that would have been the worst type of grief they could imagine, because you have to look at the context. The only child is who they would inherit all the lineage, the tribe name, the family name. If there's no only child left, they don't really have a family tree any longer. And so they're going to really be mourning more and more than, than normal in a way. But think about who they're really mourning. Once again, we know because we know this, this book, we know Scripture. They're mourning, even this verse, this is a prophetic verse describing the Israelites mourning Jesus. It's the Messiah in their mind, but the Messiah is, as we know, Jesus. There's other prophetic verses that echo this same thought, though. If you have your Bible or your phone, you can turn to Psalm 22. I'm going to read a few verses out loud. They won't be on screen. But if you want to turn with me, we're going to be in Psalm 22, verse 12. And we're going to read some of these other verses that echo this exact same thought in Zechariah. So Psalm 22, verse 12. And we're going to read a few in a row here, by the way. Here's what 12 says. 22, 12 says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths are wide open against me. So this is referring to the hate-filled crowd that was trying to crucify Jesus. Remember when he was at Pilate, they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. This verse is comparing them to bulls and lions. 
And it says the word Bashan. It doesn't mean much to us, but Bashan in these times was known as a place that raised lots of cattle, lots of bulls with big horns that would gore you to death. So it was a visual they would have got very easily. And also it's compared to a ravaging lion. And think about how a lion, think about lion and a sheep. What happens when lions and sheep get together? It rips the sheep to pieces. That's the whole idea here. That was 12 and 13. Let's read verse 14. Same chapter, Psalm 22, verse 14. Now the Messiah is speaking. And think about Jesus as I read these verses. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. And look what it says at the end. They pierce my hands and my feet. Think about Jesus' suffering as you read those verses. It's, it's almost excruciating to think about. The agony of him hanging on that wooden cross and his joints being dislocated as he's hung there. <clears throat> Which is why he's talking about my bones are out of joint. Also, think about the thirst he would have went through and been dehydrated on that cross. His tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth. Can we even picture or imagine that? Probably not. I mean, the closest, remember that movie Mel Gibson made a while back? Nobody wants to watch anymore because it's so graphic. My wife is here and she won't even watch it because it's so bad. But it's a picture of the suffering he went through. And then eventually his weakened body, he couldn't breathe, his lungs wouldn't work. His heart's too weak to pump blood. All that's described in Psalms and Zechariah. Hundreds and hundreds of years. But it came to fruition. Let me read us another verse. This one will be on screen. So we're done with Psalms. John chapter 19. And it's verse 34. Let's look at it. It says, we know this verse. One of the soldiers did what? Pierced his side. Same thing we've heard in two other verses. With a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Remember, they were kind of checked to see if he was dead yet. That's where that came to fruition. So these verses, 500 years prior, get fulfilled in John 19, which we'll eventually see on the weekend. Which brings up a great thought or point. It's not a point that I have for us to write, but it's still a great point. Every single word in God's book, God's word, his scripture, is true. It all gets fulfilled. It all gets completed it doesn't matter if it's 500 years early, as we might call it. It's all true. It all will come true. So the stuff that quite hadn't happened yet, like those end times verses we read earlier, the ones we read in Revelation also, they will be fulfilled. Like when it says God will step in, fight the battle, wipe out all these massive armies. They're yet to come, but they will happen. So Zechariah chapter 12, it ends, if we were to read the rest of these verses, it ends with the people mourning over the ones that they pierced, the Messiah. Which brings up our second point that if you're taking notes, you do want to write this one. Mourning over our sin, just like the people sin that crucified the Messiah, mourning over our sin will lead us to repentance. It's not a casual mourning. It's like the loss of our only child. That's the kind of mourning it was compared to. That's the kind of mourning God wants us to have for our own sin. And Jesus himself taught this exact same concept over in Matthew chapter 5. And there's a section of verses called the Beatitudes. 
Now, sometimes as pastors, we'll apply this verse in a funeral because I'm going to read the verse. It's Matthew 5, 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But really, if you look at the context, it's talking about blessed are those who mourn for their own sin, like the loss of an only child. And so my question for myself as I was studying, I would ask you guys to think the same thing to yourself, all of you watching online. When's the last time we even wept over our sin? Probably not recently in my case. Do we weep over our sin, much less mourn like a death of a child? It's a challenging concept, but it's what God wants us to do. And and the real concept is not to be so sad that it breaks us. It's to change and not do that again. We mourn so we won't keep repeating the same dumb mistake. And then we ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help me not do that again where I won't have to mourn like this. So that ends up chapter 12. Let's move on to chapter 13 because now the people are, they're mourned, they're ready to be cleaned up. They're ready to be washed clean. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. Here's what 13.1 says. On that day, after they've mourned, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more. Because if you remember a few weeks ago, they were worshiping false teachers and false idols. They'll be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets, which is the false prophets, and the spirit of impurity from the land. So God is going to purge not just Jerusalem, but the entire promised land of these idols, false prophets, and unclean spirits. But in this passage, we do see a key principle that really applies to me and you. It says, once we've repented, like the people are doing right here in this verse, once we've turned away from our sin and done that 180 we kind of like to do here sometime to demonstrate what it looks like to repent, we need to remove anything that would remind us of that old sinful habit, that old sinful behavior. In other words, something that would tempt me in my mind to do it again. Take away the distractions. Take away the temptation. Get it out of the house. And it may not be a little idle. It probably is not, by the way. It just may be a sinful thing that's consuming my mind, my energy, my focus. It might be something that's not even what you would think is a sinful object. For example, um, years ago I was really into old cars, um, and I restored like a 65 Chevelle convertible. It became not really an idol because I definitely didn't worship it, but it was taking a lot of my time and energy. And it was okay when it was just Donna and I. I would go in the garage, work on it at night, stuff like that. It did take up a lot of weekend time, I will admit. But after we had kids, I realized, and I was already at church, getting more on fire for the Lord, that thing is taking too much time up. And all the guys cover your ears, I sold a frame off restored 65 Chevelle convertible with a 427 big block. Yep, see, I knew it. That's going to like be a spear in some guy's side. And it was a perfect car. I mean, like a car you see on Meekum. But it, it really was too much of my time. And I, my wife kind of brought it up. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not getting rid of that. Are you kidding me? But then I thought about it. And I'm like, you know what? She's right. I don't really use it. It was just sitting there. I would take the kids. We would go riding once a month. But we were barely using it. It was beautiful to look at. But I wouldn't really go into car shows like I used to pre-children. It was just consuming too much of time. It was a time stealer. So I sold it, got rid of it, and believe it or not, don't even miss it. It's kind of cool to look at, but 
It's okay. It was a, a stage of my life that I'm done with. So sorry, guys. I got a picture for you when to see it, and it was really like a perfect car. But, you know, <laughs> sometimes things got to go. They got to go. To, you would not say that was a sinful object, because you might say it was a beautiful object. But see, it was, it was consuming my time. That was why it was almost like an idol. Maybe you have a similar thing that's taken all of your time. Like I said, it's probably not a little statue. It could be something ordinary. Maybe you're into fishing. You're into golf. You're into whatever. Or it could actually be a sinful behavior. It could be pornography, drinking, drugs, alcohol, whatever. But it could be a normal thing like a car. So God will speak to you. He spoke to me, and it's gone. Done. No more. Until I get really old and retire. Then maybe I'll buy another one. Don't tell my wife, though. God just wants us to remove any distraction, anything that's keeping us from focusing on him, his word, and his commands. That's what it really boils down to. And it may come to a hard decision. Trust me, that was a hard decision. But once again, it had to be done. When we mourn over our sin, and that wasn't really a sin, it was more like a a time stealer. It's showing God, too, that I recognize that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wrong. God, I, I'm not living exactly like I should be for you. I want to go all in. And that is pleasing to the Lord when we go all in for him. But maybe you're struggling with something that's more like an addiction. You know, we have a great program here called Celebrate Recovery. We've got other recovery ministries. We've got groups for divorce care, grief share, loss of a loved one. We have cancer survivor groups. We've got groups for people with physical disabilities, But if you're struggling in any way, reach out to us at the church. We would love to contact you with some of these groups and these leaders because we're here to help you. This is a body of people that love each other. So we want to lovingly help you get through whatever's holding you back from being all in for God. And don't ever be ashamed to say, I need help in some area, even if it's an old car like mine. So verses 3 through 6, they're going to describe the people's, the wrath they're going to get when they, when they, all these false prophets. So we're going to skip over those. We're going to skip down to verse 7. And in verse 7, the reason we're skipping, it's a drastic sort of change of, of thought. It's a different process. We're going to move from the false prophets, which is what we've been describing the last week and a half. We're going to start talking about the true prophet, Jesus. Now, we already touched on him on the cross, but we're going to see more Jesus coming up. Remember last week was a lot of Jesus? This week, once again, a lot of Jesus. So, and also as we read some of these verses, we're going to see that God is going to purify the people and purify them by fire. You'll see what I mean when we get there. But let's read verse 7. It says, Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Another important verse we'll see repeated again. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. So the shepherd's going to get struck, the sheep are going to scatter. Once again, this is a prophetic verse about Jesus. Listen to what Jesus himself tells his disciples, and you probably know this verse. When I, it's going to be on screen, but you'll know it once we start looking at it. Jesus said this on the Mount of Olives, and we'll also see the Mount of Olives again later tonight also, by the way. He's referring when he makes this statement in Matthew 26 to this verse in Zechariah. Let's read it. Jesus told them, that's the disciples, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, and he's referencing Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd, Jesus, and the sheep, disciples, of the flock will be scattered. Jesus quotes this verse we're reading. So 
We are a full picture. We know the Matthew verse. We forget where Jesus got it from. He's quoting Zechariah 14.7. So let's look at another verse. A few verses later, he kind of touches on the same thing. It's chapter 26, verse 56. Here's what it says. I think it'll be on screen too. This is all taking place that the writings of the prophets, the prophet Zechariah, by the way, will be fulfilled. Then look what happened. All the disciples deserted him and fled. So it came to pass exactly as Jesus just warned them about. And this is when they're coming to arrest Jesus. They're in the garden. They're getting ready to haul him to Pilate and have a trial then, you know, later. So now let's look back at verse 7. You have to flip there, but let me read the part we just read. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. What just happened in Matthew? They struck Jesus. All the disciples took off. We don't know that guy. They scattered. All the writings are fulfilled 500 years. There's, there's approximately 500 years between Zechariah and this Matthew verse. So it came to pass exactly as God's word said it would. So isn't it exciting sometime when you see scripture fulfilled like that? When you kind of connect the dots, as I like to call it sometime, or get the backstory, Because a lot of times, it'll happen some more tonight, trust me, we know the concept, we know the New Testament verse, we forget sort of where they got it from. We know it's an Old Testament verse, but tonight we're seeing them in person. Another great reminder, and this is another concept that you'll hear a lot at Calvary, the Word of God is living, it's active, it's powerful, and it never comes back void, never returns void. We're seeing literally examples of that all night long of how an Old Testament prophesied one thing and they said, ah, surely that can't happen. 500 years later, it exactly happened exactly like the prophet said. Just like we studied Revelation, all that's been recorded, it will exactly come to pass exactly as we read it and studied it last month. Let's read verse 8 and 9 together. Back to our Zechariah text, verse 8 and 9. Here's what it says. In the whole land, declares the Lord, and there was the whole nation, two-thirds of the people, that's what it means, will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. Verse 9 says, this third, this remnant, I will put into the fire, which sounds kind of weird. They're, they survive, and God's going to put them in the fire. But look what he says he's going to do. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is our God. Let's all say that together. The Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. You can never say that too much, by the way. And when we say that, God is saying, I know you're my people. We are God's people. The people are finally repenting and coming back to the Lord. That's what he wanted. And really, this came to pass, by the way. This is another kind of prophecy. It didn't happen until many years later. Rome will invade Jerusalem around 70 AD. They attacked Jerusalem. They massacred most of the city. They tore down the temple. And it was partially destroyed, the whole city was. But God is telling us in this verse, he's going to preserve a remnant. A remnant for himself that will be his people. But they're his people because, remember what they said? It says they called out to God. They sought God. That's what God wants us to do, call out to him. But he says, I'm going to put them in the refire and, and refine them. It's a refining process. And if you look up what that really means, we have any goldsmiths in here? Probably not. I didn't expect it. I was waiting. You never know. Because when I every now and then ask if there's a Jewish person, I'll get a hand or two. 
But back in these days, there was a trade called goldsmith. You'll see some modern jewelers doing the same thing. But they would make things out of pure, refined gold. And they would heat it up super hot, and all the impurities would come to the top. And what's all that kind of weird stuff on the top, all the impurities, is called dross, D-R-O-S-S. Then you would skim that off, and pure gold would be left. Well, the way the goldsmith would know that it was sort of ready, it, it would kind of come to the top, he'd scoop out the dross, throw that away, scoop it some more, but he would look over the kind of boiling liquid gold, and when he could see his reflection, that meant it was no more impurities left. And it wasn't perfectly pure, but it was probably as pure as they could get it. So he would know that his work was complete when he could see his reflection in that liquefied gold. And that's what God is using as illustration. He's telling them, and they would have known this illustration, even though we don't. That's why I explained it to you. That's the kind of refining God is talking about. He's going to burn off all the impurities of their life, which brings up our third point if you're taking notes. Write this one down. Jesus wants to remove the impurities in our lives, and here's the key, so he can see his reflection in us, in you, in me. Just like that melted goldsmith, Jesus wants our impurities gone so we look more like him. So the world sees Jesus, not Dave. They see Jesus, not any of you. It's the refining process. And the stuff they're burning off, by the way, is all our sinful habits, behaviors, all the things that don't make us look like Jesus. That's the dross that's got to go. So then it becomes the question, well, okay, we're not goldsmiths. How does that work? How does that happen? Let me just read you a verse. It won't be on screen, but Jeremiah 23, 29 tells us. Here's what it says. Is not, this is God speaking, is not my word like a fire, like a refining fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. So this is what refines us. His word is fire. All through scripture, it's called fire. But it refines us, it purifies us. The more we read this, the more we study this, the more we listen on Wednesday night and the weekend, it refines us. It makes me go home and think, even as I'm teaching. I've got to work on that. got to work on that one. God's Word always refines us the rest of our entire lives. That's why we say here at Calvary, you know, discipleship, it never stops. It's a lifelong process as we look more like Jesus. Because we're never going to look like a perfect Jesus in that reflection, but we have to get more like Jesus God's word is how we do that. It consumes our impurities. It makes us more holy with the Holy Spirit's help. It makes us look more like Jesus. So chapter 14, we're moving on to the last chapter. I think I said 14 while I go, but we really were in 13. Now we're really going to hit 14. So we're going to look, um, we're going to skip down to verse 4. Verses 1 through 3, they just talk about end time, stuff we covered in Revelation, all the nations attacking Israel. So skip to verse 4, which is a very interesting verse. This is a verse that you would think, by the way, even I all used to think this, you, you would think it'd be in Revelation. It sounds like a Revelation verse, but it's only found in Zechariah, the book we're reading right now. So let me read it, verse 4. On that day, remember I said we'd see on that day a lot tonight? On that day, which is in times, his feet, and the his feet would be Jesus' feet, by the way, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. 
Then look what verse 5 says. You, which is the people, you will flee by my mountain valley, the new valley created when it splits, for it will extend to Azel. Now, I think we have a picture of the Mount of Olives. And this is Pastor Bob's picture, so full credit to Bob. This is in the city looking up toward the Mount of Olives. So that's a Greek Orthodox church, if I remember right, at the bottom. The Mount of Olives is like dead center at the top. And if you go to that Israel trip, you'll do a little short devotional at this site. Some of you in this room I know have been there. I was there. So that is the Mount of Olives. And the people call it a mountain. To me, by the way, it's more like a big hill. I think it's about 600 feet tall. But that's what's going to split in half. Jesus will stand there. Half of it goes north. Half of it goes south. And you can literally stand where that's going to happen. Then you'll walk down a long road. You'll end up at the Garden of Gethsemane at the bottom. There's all kind of cool stuff, and the, where Bob took this picture is Jerusalem. It's right across the street, or the city. It's literally the old wall, the old city is right across the street. So when this happens, by the way, when Jesus puts his feet on the mountain and it splits, the people in Jerusalem are going to be going, what in the world's going on over there? It's going to be easily visible to all the Jewish people, whoever's watching, and it'll probably be world news, I would think, unless it happens so fast we can't record it. Think of the news even in Israel. Jesus is on the mountain. Oh, my gosh, we messed up so bad. He is the Messiah because there he is. He's back. And we'll be over here going, I told you so. I told you so. Or we're, we might be caught up in the air in the, you know, the second coming by then, by the way. So who knows exactly where this fits in the timeline. But... This mountain will split in two, and God is going to make, remember I told you, we'll see the, the way maker again. God is going to make a way, if you go back to that verse in verse 5, you're going to flee by my mountain valley, the new valley. Because it looks like all these armies are coming against Jerusalem, there's no way out, there's a mighty army, they're looking like they're going to lose. God is literally going to split the mountain, make a new valley, an escape route for the people. He's going to make a way, way maker, there was no way. It was a mountain blocking the path. Now there's a new valley they're going to escape down. Kind of reminds you of the Red Sea, doesn't it? When there was no way out, there was a mountain of water, a wall of water. He made a way where there was no way. It's the same exact concept. And God does things we don't understand. We think there's no way, no way out. I'm sure Jerusalem will be thinking that when they see this army coming. But Jesus is going to make a way. Let's look at a verse on screen. It's Isaiah 58. I mean, excuse me, 55. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Let's read it together. This is God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, because my thoughts aren't big enough, and neither are yours. Nor are my ways, or, or your ways, my ways, says the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your small human ways, is what God really means. And my thoughts greater and bigger than your thoughts. God can make a way when there is no way. He can make a way in any of your lives or my life. When we have a trial, a thing we're struggling with, it looks to us there's no way that can fix. There's no way that terminal cancer could be cured. If God can split mountains in half and part Red Seas, he can fix terminal cancer. There is nothing our God can't fix. We just need to have the faith and, and get our brothers and sisters to pray for it. Now, let me qualify that. We know in Scripture God does not heal every person. God may not heal me if I get cancer. But I'm going to pray that he does if I do get it, and I'm going to trust and believe that he could. Whether he does is up to him. That's out of my control. But either way, I go to heaven. 
So it's a win-win anyway. I'll just either going to go now or go later. I'm still going, just like you're going if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer, we'll give you a chance at the end tonight to fix that. We'll come and, and pray together. So when you're backed into a corner where you see no way out of, you know, God, I believe, I, I love you, but I just don't know how this is going to work. I, just, I can't see it. That verse just told us our minds can't see it. We have small human brains that can't comprehend what God's doing. He can split mountains, part seas. Don't ever limit our Lord. Um, because here, here's what happens usually. In my wisdom, I'll come up with plan A. We have a human called plan A. And if you remember a couple of months ago, I forget exactly how long. Remember Pastor David Palmisano taught and he says, don't come up with a plan B. Remember that? It was pretty funny, I love, when he said that. Don't have a plan B. In other words, just trust God. Well, God has a plan C, which is his plan. God's plan far dwarfs any of ours, even my plan A or my plan B, because my plan B is usually like, okay, my didn't work, let's go to idea number two. God's plan C is the perfect plan that splits mountains, parts seas, gives me a way out I never could even imagine, because he's perfect and my brain is not. That's the bottom line. Neither is yours, by the way. Let's read verse 8. Verse 8. On that day, see here's on that day again, on that day of end times when Jesus splits the mountain, look what else happens. It's not just a mountain splitting. Living water, heard that word before, hadn't you? Living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea, half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. In other words, it's a year-long living water, fresh spring. And here's what's interesting about the Dead Sea part. And, and by the way, if you take that Israel trip, you'll go to the Dead Sea. It's so salty, you can float on your back and read a book. All your friends probably have a picture doing it. It's a Dead Sea because it's so salty, nothing can live in it. When this happens, when this living water runs out, guess what happens? It's now the live sea. God's going to make a way for the Dead Sea to come to life. And it's his way, plan C. Doesn't matter how salty it is. God's going to fix it in his timing and in his way. Which brings up our final point, which I love this one, by the way. Point number four. Jesus is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. Don't you like that one? Because this is a dead thing right here that he brought back to life. We were all dead in our sins. Scripture tells us we were dead in our trespasses. He brought everybody I'm looking at back to life, if you're a believer or a Christ follower. He's going to bring this sea back, but he's going to bring the people back. Anybody that doesn't yet believe, he will bring back. And a few months ago, I was teaching one of the weekends as the substitute teacher, and I got the assignment to teach chapter 7. And I read a verse. Remember, if you were here, I poured some water on the stage because Jesus made the living water statement. Here's what he said. I want to reread it to us because it ties in with this living water that is going to come from where his feet are standing. He said in John chapter 7, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, all of us, as Scripture has said, out of our heart, his heart, her heart, will flow rivers of living water to refresh other people. When we believe and follow Jesus, we are refreshed enough to refresh others. And we refresh them, by the way, with the gospel. It's nothing of us. It's God's power, God's gospel. Because the whole world is chasing fulfillment. They're trying to quench their thirst on dumb stuff. Some of us, me included, have chased dumb stuff before. The only true thirst fulfillment is Jesus, this living water we're reading about. 
Look at what verse 9 says. The Lord Jesus will be king over the whole earth. So now we're really, really in the end times. He's king of the earth. On that day, once again, here's that day again, there will be one Lord, no confusion, no other religion, no other option, one Lord, his name, the only name. The same thing we already know now. But at that point, the whole world will know it. There will be no other doubt in anybody's mind. Then skip down to verse 16. We're going to skip a few verses. Look what it says at the end. And I read this one that same weekend too, by the way. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up, look what it says, year after year after year. And this is in time, so they're going to go every year from then on to worship the King Jesus and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. Because if you were here that weekend, remember I said there's one Jewish festival that even us Gentiles are going to do, it's this one. Because in end times, we still celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. And by the way, tabernacle just means to dwell. So Jesus is going to dwell with us. We're going to worship King Jesus in person somehow in Jerusalem or in the new heaven. And it's going to be the best day we ever had. We just get to show up and worship the king. We did that tonight, but it's a poor imitation of what we're going to do those days. These verses are really interesting and fascinating how the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, all tie together. Because it also says, even the people that attacked, they're going to every knee bow. Remember I said we're going to see that song too? In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, I'm going to paraphrase it. Here's what it says. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and then every tongue will confess. Every knee, every tongue, not the ones that believe now, there will be no other option. You can go to the lake of fire, like we read in Revelation, or you're going to every knee bow and confess. There's no other choice. So maybe, as we've studied and read this, we're going to end up right now in Zechariah. That's kind of how the book ends. And it's really a positive end. Jesus comes back. Living water changes everything for the better. It's a time of paradise, peace on earth. Remember back in Revelation, there's no need to fight. There's no other army. There's no war, no difficulty. It's a perfect new heaven and new earth. But as we've studied this, maybe tonight, maybe you've wandered off. Maybe you have some sort of unconfessed sin in your life. Maybe like the scriptures told us tonight, you're mourning over that sin. Maybe not quite like a loss of a child, but maybe it, it's bothering you. Well, after tonight ends, I'm going to pray and we'll close. Come up here and let's pray a prayer. Rededicate your life back to Jesus. If you're watching online, pray the prayer at home by yourself or call the church. We'd love to pray with you over the phone. It's never too late to do the right thing. All through this book of Zechariah, Jesus and God have told the people, just repent, just come back, just come back. If that's you tonight and you want to come back to the Lord, I'd love to pray with you. So let's just close in prayer. Lord, tonight, thank you for your word. Thank you for being pierced as we read tonight on that cross for us. It's my sin and all the people hearing and watching tonight. Our sin is what put you there, Lord, and you were pierced for us. May we never forget that. But Lord, you also give us grace and mercy and just call us to follow you, return, and repent. So Lord, tonight, if anybody's here that wants to repent and return, I just pray they would be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit to put their life in order and just follow you, Lord. And Father, we love you, we thank you, and we just want to give our lives and our heart, our mind, our body, our soul, all to you, because you are the only one worthy of our praise, our worship, 
Only you are holy, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said, amen. amen.